we continue in our study of the parables of Jesus. And in Matthew 13, we find seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. The beginning, the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of leaven, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the net. Last Sunday, we looked at a pair of these, but as they are recorded in Luke, the mustard seed and leaven. Today, we will look at another pair. These are only found in Matthew. They're not found in Mark or Luke, the other synoptics. That is the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I've argued in our study of parables that context is important uh, to understand what Jesus is saying. But one might ask, what is the context for these particular parables, these two parables? Well, the context is chapter 13, in which Jesus gives this series of parables on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned this last Sunday, that if we view parables as being God-centered, how are we to view parables that are about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven is like... What does that tell us about God? What is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? It is God's gracious rule, his saving rule. It is his administration of his will among his people. Jesus taught us to pray... Your kingdom come, your will be done. These two always go together. The kind of things that the Jews were expecting of the kingdom of heaven was quite different from what Jesus was bringing. They were expecting a military leader. They were expecting expecting national triumph and visible glory. And so we see Jesus speaking again and again about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Just a side note, some people make much of the fact that Matthew only uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. We don't find that in the other Gospels. And in the other Gospels, they talk about the kingdom of God. Um, I think we should not make too much of this, if anything at all. We need to recognize that the nature of the kingdom is a reflection of the nature of the king. And so if we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, then it is the kingdom of God because it is a reflection of who God is. I think we tend to make, uh, there's a certain disconnect we have between uh, the ruler and his or her kingdom. Um, I'm convinced that when Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of heaven, he is telling us about the king, that is God and his nature. When you look at these parables together, um, they, they in a sense do go together. As I mentioned last week with the mustard seed and the leaven, there's, they're twin parables, but not identical twins. Um, You'll notice in verse number five that Matthew uses the word again. So there there does seem to be a natural connection between these two parables. Um, And before we look at them, just some similarities and some differences. They both begin and end similarly. And we find in each one that that each man sold everything that he had in order to possess the item in question. In the first parable, the thing found is the center or the central aspect. In the second one, it is the finder, if you wish, the man who is looking for pearls. The first man is not looking for treasure, but he finds treasure. He stumbles on it. 
And so there is a difference there. Joy is mentioned in the first parable, but not in the second. Um, I'm convinced, however, it is central to these two, and that's why these two parables should be seen together. Uh, If you find a merchant selling everything he has in order to get a pearl, I think there's a certain emotional aspect to that, and I would call that joy. Hiddenness is a central aspect in the first parable, but we don't seem to find it, no pun intended, in the second You could make the case that in some sense the great pearl was hidden because the man is looking for pearls of great value and then he finds this one, this pearl of great price. So let's look at these two parables separately. First of all, the hidden treasure. Let's look at the cultural context. Uh, In different cultures, different times, people have oftentimes hidden their possessions in the ground. Um, they've dug a hole and buried it, and either they remember where it is or they tell somebody, you know, when, when all the trouble is past, this is where you will find our possessions. Um, if you know anything about pre-first century history in Palestine, Palestine was just sort of overrun with battles and wars, and things were very uncertain. So it would not be unusual for someone to, in fact, take whatever money they had or whatever possessions they had, dig a hole and bury it in the ground. Uh, Josephus tells us in the first century uh, that the, the wealthy Jews were believed to have buried their wealth in the ground and so the Romans went all over Palestine digging it up trying to find this wealth. You might also remember the parable of the talents that the one servant who had one talent buried it in the ground. That's for security. And so that's, that's what people did back then. And so this is certainly an unusual event that Jesus describes but not an impossible event. Uh, there are even today t- uh, TV shows about people who go around with metal detectors looking for treasure. Um, well, back then, this man stumbles on this treasure on this field. A side issue, but I have to address it, and that is the ethical issue, because there are, in fact, people who believe that this man acted in an unethical manner. They believe that what he should have done when he found the treasure was to go to the owner and say, listen, I found this treasure in your, in your property, and it is yours. Instead, he hides the treasure again, and then he goes and buys the field so that he can possess it. I don't think, personally, that the man acted wrongly. But if you think he did, then the parable has an entirely different meaning than if you think he acted correctly. Uh, John Dominic Crossan, who's part of the Jesus Seminar, believes that the man's actions were immoral. And as a result, he sees the parable as telling us that the kingdom of God demands the abandonment of our goods, of our morals, and even of this parable itself. Just toss it all out. Because this man acted in an immoral way, the call of the kingdom of God is, in a sense, to abandon all things. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God cannot be explained. It just sort of defies Explanation, and, and so what this man did was wrong, and, and try to make sense of that. If you can, then you can make sense of the kingdom of God. Another writer sees this as lawless narcissism, and that the man foolishly impoverished himself because he sold everything that he had in order to buy this field to get the treasure, and then the, the scholar says, and then he couldn't dig up the treasure because then he would be busted for having the treasure. Well, You may remember when we began this whole series on parables that I said that, in fact, parables are brief. 
The first parable here today in verse number 44 is one verse. So there are a lot of things that are left out, a lot of details, perhaps unnecessary details that are not mentioned. Um, the, the description of the characters is rather thin. Um, as I mentioned, you know, in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, his mother's never mentioned. What about his mom? Well, Jesus is telling a parable and he's trying to get to the point and other things are, are left out. Um, I think that both of these men, uh, Crossan and Scott, uh, the other scholar, are, are seriously wrong. In part because they have made several assumptions. One is they assume that the treasure belonged to the man who owned the field. That the man who owned the field had buried the treasure there and therefore it was his. And by this man buying the field, uh, he was taking away this man's treasure. Um, wait a minute. Don't you think if a man buried treasure in his field, he would know that he had buried the treasure in the field and he wouldn't sell it to, to somebody? Um, I'm convinced that as Jesus tells this one verse parable, that what he has in mind is something that was left there perhaps centuries before. We're not told. But it doesn't belong to the man who owned the field. I mean, he didn't bury it there. It was something that was left there years before and no one knew about it. And this man stumbles on it and therefore he sells everything he has in order uh, to possess it. I don't think the man's actions were immoral. I think what he did was entirely moral. Having said that, the Lord willing, what we will look at next week, the parable of the unjust steward, we see a man acting in a less than moral way. The parables are not given, this one is not given to say this is the moral thing to do. It's trying to make a point. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure in a field. The parable is marked by simplicity. You have a man who stumbles on a treasure. He's not looking for it. He's not looking at the property. He's not looking to buy anything. He just happens to stumble on it. And having found the treasure, he hides it again. Finding the treasure changes everything in this man. In his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought the field. The second parable is the parable of the pearl of great price. Um, and I must confess um, that this is among my favorite parables. And rightly or wrongly, it's in part because of Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, in which we are told, this is in chapter 6, entitled Pearl, that Hester names her illegitimate daughter Pearl. But she named the infant Pearl as being of great price, purchased with all she had, her mother's only treasure. I mean, she lost her reputation. She lost everything because of this illegitimate child. And she gives her the name Pearl, something of great price. Culturally, in the ancient world, pearls were considered as the most valuable objects in existence. They became a figure of speech in all cultures, that if you had a pearl, you were talking of something that was of supreme worth. And that's why I think it fits very well into this parable, the pearl of great price. In terms of the ethical context, we dealt with ethics in the first parable. It is worth noting that a merchant in the ancient world was considered to be of less than reputable uh, character. Being a merchant involved great risk, but also potentially great reward. Um, in one text, we read, a merchant can hardly keep from wrongdoing. 
But having said that, there is no indication that this man is of less than moral uh, character. Um, there's nothing unethical about what he does. He's looking for pearls, and then he finds this great pearl. He sells everything in order to possess this one. Okay, the parable is marked by simplicity. There is a merchant in the market for fine pearls. Uh, he finds one of great value, and he sells everything to possess it. So what do these two parables mean? What are we to understand from them? I think the place is to begin, the place to begin is that the hidden treasure and the pearl represent the same thing. And what is that thing that Jesus is talking about? It is the rule of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like. It is the revelation of God. It is the call to reconciliation. God's rule graciously as he gathers his people in. To put it briefly, it is new life in Christ. Something brand new. And in examining this new life, this life of discipleship, as presented in these parables, several things I think are worth noting. First of all, joy. And at least one commentator sees this as the central aspect of these two parables, even though it's only mentioned in the first one. The man is carried away with his joy when he finds this treasure. His life changes completely. He finds this treasure, he hides it, and he is filled with joy at having found this. And he sells everything he has in order to possess this field. Each man, by the way, sold everything they had in order to possess a precious new reality. And joy is the engine, it is the motivation that caused them to do this. I think that's critical to understanding these parables. Yeah, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the commandments in which God tells his people, this is how you're supposed to live. We read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, God did something. That's what Passover is about. It is an occasion of real joy. And because God did this for Israel, they are now to keep his commandments. Because these men find treasure, because he finds a great pearl, they sell everything, and then, I mean, their life changes completely, and then they are able to possess these things. Having said that, for all the joy that there is in this parable, it isn't simply joy, there is real seriousness. Um, We're told in both stories that each man sold everything or all that he had, and Whenever you see something repeated in scripture, when you're like, well, I, I, yeah, I already heard that the first time. But when it's repeated, you, you should take it seriously. And I think this is what Matthew is trying to convey. There's something else. And oftentimes when we read these parables, we might assume that these men sacrifice greatly in order to possess these things. There is no sense in either parable that each man thought he was making a sacrifice in order to get this thing. By selling all he had, they don't see it as some great self-sacrifice in order to possess this thing. What drives each man is joy. They have found something. And because of their joy, it causes them to do what they do. Selling all that they have to possess a new reality. What we need to understand, and particularly those of us, I think, raised in Christian families, or who have been Christians for some time, I think we tend to forget this. 
By the way, much as we do with the mustard seed, we forget the tiny mustard seed. We remember the big plant. See, we're after the fact oftentimes, and so we're thinking of the big thing, and we forget how it all starts. We should hear in the gospel that there are facts before orders. That is, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and then he tells them this is how you're supposed to live. There is joy before there is selling. It isn't selling in order to get joy. There is discovery before decision. They discover, the man discovers a pearl, he discovers a treasure, and then he makes a decision. There is gospel before law, something I think we often get wrong. Um, it is the good news, and then God tells us how we are to live. There are the Beatitudes before we find the commandments. I think we tend to reverse this order. And so obedience becomes something that's rather tedious, odious, and a burden. Do you think either of these men, I mean, they're very brief, so we're filling in the details, but you think either one of these men said, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to sell everything. They were glad to sell everything because of joy. They wanted this thing, and so they were willing to give up everything in order to possess it. Joy is what drove them. And another thing, selling is not a condition for finding. You'll notice in both parables, they don't sell everything in order to find something. They find something and then they sell. Being human, we tend to start with ourselves. and We believe that the whole enterprise begins with us. And so one finds in various religious tr traditions, and sadly even among some Christians, the notion that... Um, we must think like the Buddha, if you wish, and that is that we must give up everything and we must search and search and search and search and then we will find, if you wish, the pearl of great price. If you know the story of the Buddha, as is recorded, uh, he tried various methods to find enlightenment and in the process lost his family, lost his health, lost everything, but then apparently then he found enlightenment. That is the exact reverse of what we find in the kingdom of heaven. God reveals himself graciously. We don't sell everything to find it. He gives it to us. And then because of that, we are possessed with this joy and willing to give up all because we have heard the good news. The gospel tells us that God is there. He has created us. He has a purpose for us. He is willing to forgive our sins. That is the pearl of great price. Having said that, there is a place for selling. Having been forgiven, finding, we are also to forgive. Selling, if you wish. It is not that we forgive selling in order that we might be forgiven. That is finding. Um, we tend to get that backwards. And so the parable, I think, oftentimes doesn't fall on deaf ears, but it just doesn't sort of ring true to us or with us as it should. Now that we have become God's children, with joy we should make him the center of our lives, and it should color everything that we do. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is the treasure. In Christ is treasure. And what Paul wants as he writes his epistles is that out of this will come a Christian life, a life of discipleship. That is, if you wish, the selling. There is a place for that. But the finding always comes first. The finding comes first. Bear with me now, because I'm going to go in a different direction right now. Because I notice that we haven't seen it so much, but we will in the weeks to come, that so many of the parables seem to deal with money. They seem to deal with possessions. And living in the time where we do, I think we may hear these parables or read them in a very different way. Um, so many of them use the language of the marketplace, the language of economics. Let me just say as I begin here, I'm borrowing heavily, quite heavily from Ken Myers in the most recent uh, edition of Mars Hill Audio Journal, his introduction to an interview with Daniel M. Bell Jr. Uh, on his book on capitalism is, is just wonderful. We need to recognize as we come to the text not only today, but any time that we read it, that modern Western culture has really rearranged our thinking and our understanding of just about everything, about God, about ourselves, about our freedom, about dignity. And by the way, uh, I mentioned to my students in my le- one of my lectures that a recent essay by a Harvard psychologist is entitled The Stupidity of Dignity. Um, boy, I think we've gone in a different direction. It's also affected our view or rearranged our view of community, of reason, and of culture itself. We need to recognize that these are inconsistent with Christian belief and Christian practice. And I'm not sure that we get that oftentimes. Modernization, the modern project, if you wish, involves in part the separation of things that used to go together. And now when I tell you that they go together, it may sound very strange to you because you're like, no, Damon, those things are separate. So we find separated in our time, home from work, fact from value, individuals from community, religion from politics, the nuclear family from extended families, medium from message, form from content, art from belief, economy from ethics, knowledge from wisdom, present from the past, time from eternity. And I think more recently we find sex from marriage, love from procreation, and gender from biology. And oftentimes we find that the power of the state is used to enforce or reinforce these separations, usually in the name of freedom. There is a claim that the modern liberal state makes that they must separate beliefs, the metaphysical, from the conduct of politics, the physical, if you wish. These are two separate spheres. That somehow justice and freedom can be advanced apart from any, you know, any religious or metaphysical understanding of, of what it means to be human or the human condition. But that, in fact, itself is a metaphysical assumption. There's an assumption that's been made there. The assumption is that our freedom is enhanced when we are able to cut the ties with anything that comes before us. Any sense of obligation. Um, you know, 
we will be in fact free when we are no longer bound by these things. Well, when this happens, then certain assumptions have already been at play when it comes to the nature of reality and about freedom. It assumes that to be liberated is to be is a good thing. To not have any connection with the past is seen as almost wonderful, which you can imagine as a historian I find somewhat disturbing. What we find is that people are allowed to redefine their experience according to their own desires. But the result is not a wonderful view of freedom, but in fact is something that's quite nihilistic. The idea of freedom as being central to everything in life is very much a distinctively modern idea. This is what it means to be modern, because we think that it's all about freedom. And I think it's much more pervasive than we can ever imagine. This is from a U.S. Court, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It's almost shocking. Or perhaps it is shocking. One of the justices wrote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That's what it means to be free. You get to define all of these things. Freedom is the right to define meaning, the mystery of human life. But we need to recognize that in this thinking, there are, in fact, two driving convictions, twin convictions. First of all, that there's nothing that is given. You know, you, you can't say that, that's, that this is true, that there's a givenness in creation. That, you know, if you wish, there, there are no absolutes except that there is no absolute. Um, and secondly, that our untrained desires are the most authentic aspect of our being. It is who I am when I desire something without any outside influence. That's who Damon Woods really is. And you all should respect that. You should just know that that's who I am. These convictions are reinforced by the shape of everyday life. And I think the thing that shapes our desires more than anything else is the marketplace. The model of the marketplace. And it doesn't seem to matter where we are or what we are doing. We find the language of commodification, commercialization, and consumerism. And we, we hear this in the government. We hear it in education, even in religion and the family. All of these institutions now address us as independent, as free, as sovereign consumers. That we are free to choose as we want we are seen ultimately as choosers. We get to choose what we want. What we choose is secondary. Whether or not it's a good choice seems to be secondary. Um, the fact that we get to choose is what is primary. And for some of the weddings I've done recently here, I've talked about this, that uh, biblically choosing is not the highest thing. Choosing well is what is wisdom. If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that these things are shaping the way that we think. They inform us, and in many ways, they malform us. Our desires don't arise out of our hearts out of nothing. But in fact, 
they are directed and they are reinforced by system of, systems of experience that point us in particular directions. So our experience, our economic experience, if you wish, because that's seen in the modern world as a separate reality, of buying, of planning to buy, of wanting to buy, this is what modern life seems to be made up of. There are few settings in which there are not, we do not find appeals to our desires. That is advertising. I was hearing this week that Twitter, I think, is going to go public with an IPO. And I remember hearing an economist saying they just have to figure out how they can make more money off of it with advertising. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I find it somewhat distressing that one can hardly go to a restaurant now without having a TV on which does not simply have a TV show on, but has ads running while you're trying to eat a meal. We're just assaulted by advertising. And it isn't simply a desire for things, okay? But a sense of, I need this. This will make me a better person. It will give me prestige. It will give me identity. People will recognize me. There's a new series of commercials now about what your clothes say about you. That you, you, you walk in and this is what your clothes say about you. Um, like it or not, many of these appeals are implicitly or explicitly against the aims of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. They are contrary to the call of Christ. We are ignorant, I think, or we tend to ignore that economic life misdirects or malforms our desires. I put a quote out several weeks ago uh, from James K.A. Smith. He said, by locating the challenges for Christian discipleship in arcane cults or sexual temptation or the secularizing forces of the Supreme Court, evangelicalism tends to miss the fact that the great tempter of our age is Walmart. The tempter does not roam about as a horrifying monster, but as an angel of light who spends most of his time at the mall. We need to recognize that as modern people, our loves are more likely to be shaped by shopping than they are by any ideology or any teaching. In part because we are modern people and we have made the separation. We have, we have ripped apart things that in fact belong together. So we think that we can distinguish between the economic act of buying and the spiritual or emotional act of wanting. that We see them as two entirely separate things. But in reality, no economic action is ever just an economic action. And no economic system is just about material goods. Every economic system has basic assumptions about human nature. This is what human beings are. And this is what constitutes the good life. That's what economic systems are about. They assume this is what you are as a human being, and they assume this is what is a good life. This is what is a good life for you. In our time, economic systems are judged on their capacity to generate wealth, to stimulate wealth, or to increase wealth. And then when we talk about things like love and justice and generosity, oftentimes we tend to say, well, that's okay, economic life is over here, and love, justice, and generosity are over here. But what if, in fact, our fundamental assumptions and aspirations about love, justice, and generosity are, in fact, shaped 
by our economic decisions? What if, in fact, your idea of what generosity is and what love is and what justice is is affected more by a trip to the mall than it is by a trip to Melrose to hear a sermon? That, in fact, these things impact us more than we realize. You see, we think our beliefs shape our actions. And ideally, that would be nice. But I think we need to recognize that oftentimes our actions shape our beliefs without us even realizing it. Okay, so I've gone off on a tangent. What does this mean with regard to these two parables and the parables we will see in the weeks to come that deal with money, that deal with possessions? Um, How might we read them as modern people? Well, we might see the gospel as a commodity, as something of great value. But that, I think that's a little too disturbing. I think we would, you know, we wouldn't go there with that. I think we see it more as we are consumers. We are consumers. We are choosers. We have the freedom to choose. In fact, in the interview, one of the things that came up between Ken Myers and Daniel Bell is the notion of shopping or church shopping. Shopping for a church. Using economic language, the language of the marketplace, but more than the language, the concept of I am a consumer and I'm looking for a product. and Therefore, I will go shopping for a church. And yet, I think if we view this as consumers, we might be more enamored with, ooh, I wonder what was in the treasure or I wonder how big the pearl was. I think the notion of selling everything you have to possess something, if you did that, then you wouldn't have anything left, would you? You wouldn't have any choices. You wouldn't have any freedom. You'd be cutting yourself off. Um, I don't know that modern people would sell everything they have in order to get something. In some ways, though, that misses the point. That's beside the point. Remember, finding comes before the selling all. And joy is the engine that leads to the change. And again, for those of us who are raised in Christian homes or who have been Christians for some time, it may in fact be that the joy has been misplaced. We have no sense of it. And it may be that we have reversed the order. Orders before facts. Decision before discovery. Law before gospel. Commands before beatitudes and sacrifice before joy. And if we have, then by God's grace, by his spirit, may we reverse the order as God intended and see that joy is what is to come first and is to drive our lives. It may be as modern people that we have simply embraced the notion of separations. The idea that there is one single thing that would permeate everything just It either sounds romantic and therefore unreal or just something that, no, thank you, I'd rather not do that. Because our lives are so fragmented, the notion that there would be something, one central thing that would affect and would color everything almost sounds foreign to us. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Who is God? What is the kingdom of heaven? The good news is that God made everything, including us, and that he has not abandoned us. He has revealed himself, 
And he knows the answers to the questions of who we are, how we got here, why we are here, and where this is all headed. History is filled with stories of people who have sold everything or the equivalent of it, seeking the answers to these questions. But it's already there. The kingdom of heaven, it's like hidden treasure. It's like a pearl of great price. The good news has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And it is from the joy of having found these things, actually stumbled on them, that we now as God's people are to do what he has called us to do. That changes everything. The treasure changes everything. The pearl changes everything. Our lives are now different because of the gospel. But as I said earlier, I think for many of us, we're at the end of the parable like the mustard seed. We already see the ten-foot tree that all the birds are making nests in. We forget that tiny seed at the beginning. And in these parables, we forget the joy, the discovery. And we only focus on the selling. And after a while, just get tired of it. Sacrifice. That's all I hear, sacrifice. Some years ago, and I may have mentioned this before, there was someone who used to attend the church and had left the faith, essentially, and called me up uh, weeping, crying, uh, trying to make sense of her life and hoping that I could give her advice. Um, And I said to her, you need to come back. You need to surrender all that you have and come back to Christ. And, and she, she started crying even louder. And she said, I can't do that because if I do that, he'll make me go live in a desert somewhere. I thought, really? For her, it was all sacrifice. There is no joy at all. The joy comes in the discovery. And there may be sacrifice down the road. That's not how we find what God has given us. God has graciously revealed the gospel, the good news. And we should figuratively be doing cartwheels. We should be filled with great joy at what God has done. And then it should color and change everything we do in our lives. Let's not reverse the order. Give up everything in order to find this. It's already there. And it should change our lives. And I think, if we'd be honest, it did. We just have forgotten that. We've just forgotten that in the gospel is joy and that joy should drive us as disciples of Jesus Christ. I think if you were to ask the average Christian today, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Being filled with joy at finding a treasure or take up your cross daily and follow me? I think we'd all go with the daily cross thing. You know, that sounds more Christian. That sounds more sacrificial. There is a place for that, but it begins with the joy. Let's pray together. Father, we are your people, but we are fallen. We are affected. We breathe the air of this culture. And so we have torn apart things that belong together. And we now see ourselves in an entirely different light as free choosers that we get to make the decisions.
And so the gospel becomes, perhaps to some degree, only something to be purchased, a commodity. And reading these parables might even make us think in that direction. May we come to see that you have graciously revealed yourself in the gospel. And by your grace, we have found the gospel. Like the man in the field, we weren't even looking, necessarily, because no man seeks after God. And yet in your grace, you have revealed yourself. For those of us who have been Christians for years, or perhaps raised in a Christian home, the joy aspect may be long gone. I ask that you would restore it. Like the Ten Commandments, they aren't simply rules. They begin with the reality that you delivered your people with a mighty hand out of slavery. After four centuries of slavery, you you delivered your people. That is cause for great joy. And you have delivered each one of us from sin. I've covered a lot of material today, and I pray that by your grace and your spirit, you would bring back to our our thoughts, our memories, our hearts in the days to come, some of these things, and we would meditate on them. We would come to see what it means to be a disciple of Christ, living when and where we do. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and we'll sing the doxology together. Praise God.